So I'm not, not necessarily going to pin it all on Trotsky, the theory of the United Front. It's a pretty central uh, sort of component of uh, international socialist practice. And, uh, the, but certainly there's some quotes, some good quotes that I will give you from, um, from Trotsky at some of the high points of, of working class struggle where you had uh, some, of, some of the best expressions of, of, of um, what, what is needed in terms of reaching out to workers, you know, revolutionary organisations, revolutionaries reaching out to and attempting to mobilise alongside and with um, workers who, who aren't revolutionary, who have, uh, who have, who have reformist, you know, reformist ideas and reformist consciousness. Um, but the, you know, so j just to start, I thought just to, to start it off, I'd say there's a, a big contradiction, I think, between two of the, of the main ideas of Marxism, uh, you know, that, that, that we hold to, two of the main sort of tenets, I guess you'd say, of Marxism that we hold to. Uh, the first is that the ruling ideas are the ideas of the ruling class. That mainstream ideology that exists out there in society, it, it exists and it's, it's so strong, it's pumped out through the education system, the media, etc., because it serves the interests of, of the capitalist class. Um, it, it, it's an expression of their worldview, it justifies uh, the, the operations of their, of their system. So on the one hand, the ruling ideas are the ideas of the ruling class. And on, and on the other hand, we're calling for a socialist revolution, whereas Marx says the self-emancipation of the working class is the act of the working class. It's not something that's done by anyone else. Workers will themselves, you know, smash capitalism and, 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 establish, a, and establish a new society. So how, how do we reconcile this contradiction between, on the one hand, we say everyone out there, you know, is walking around with this dominant ideology in their head, which serves the interests of capitalism, and on the other hand, these people are going to liberate themselves. The working class is going to liberate themselves. You know, and that's where it really comes into to discussing, you know, I think two of, two of the central sort of strategic tasks of socialists is firstly building a revolutionary party and secondly building, you know, building united fronts, united fronts for struggle to overcome, to overcome that, um, that contradiction. So first, the first thing to look at, you know, this idea that the ruling ideas are the ideas of the, of the ruling class. You know, I, I've, I've gone over what that points to. You know, mo most people do accept um, you know, the, the ideas that, you know, that justify the operation, you know, of the system. So say, for example, nationalism, you know, all the time we're fed nationalism constantly, school, the media, you know, whatever it might be, the idea that we all as Australians have got some common interest, that there's a national interest, that we're all in it together in some way. This is a bourgeois idea. This is a ruling class idea. This is a reflection of their need for a nation state, their need for a national coherence in a block of capital that can compete internationally for a nation state that can project their ideas, you know, internationally, but it's accepted by, you know, accepted by, accepted by people. The idea that the police, you know, um, just, just exists to protect, you know, order, protect civil order, make sure that we all get on, that we don't murder each other, that people don't break into each other's houses, that this is the sort of the function of the police, is just to ensure the smooth operations of the system, whereas in, in reality, the police exist to protect private property and protect, you know, capital social, you know, capital social relations, you know, as, as, as we know it. Um, and a lot of the time, people's actual experiences of the world reinforce, you know, these, these dominant ideas, you know. So, say, for example, um, the idea that human beings are inherently selfish, are inherently competitive, that we're going to want to dominate other people, you know, that this is, this is somehow, you know, inherent in our human nature. This is how you get ahead, is by being ruthless and, you know, and, and, and trying to assert your interests, and this is some expression of human nature. Well, 
on, on the one hand, this is people's experience of life under capitalism, life in you know, a market society where there is a dog-eat-dog you know, uh, reality to the world, where it looks as though the fact that someone else is getting a job means you don't have a job, the fact that someone else is getting a house means you don't get a house, where if I can maybe be, be better friends with my boss, I'll be less likely to get sacked because someone's got to be sacked. Like those sorts of ideas become common sense because it's the reality of the world that you, you know, that, 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 you're, inter that you're interacting with. You know, but on the other hand, you know, people have plenty of experiences in their life which actually contradict the mainstream ideas, you know, the, the, the strength, of, the strength of, of dominant ideology. You know, nationalism that I discussed before, I mean, people will meet other people from other nationalities all the time and realise actually, you know, this is a good friend of mine, I've got a lot more in common with them than I might have with some other Aussies, etc. But even more powerfully in terms of, you know, um, a, a, a challenge to the system or ideas which can actually challenge the system is people learn through struggle, you know, the way that, you know, those ideas are actually in many ways against their interests and are being used against them and that there's alternative, you know, a, an alternative perspective about how they might be able to advance in the world that's about being part Part of a class, struggling as a class, you know, etc. So the experience of actually, you know, fighting against people, you know, being sacked at work, you know, by, by, by going on strike and winning those sorts of struggles, fighting for pay rises by going on strike and winning for those sorts of struggles, you can come to recognise, you know, the power, you know, of, of um, you know, of working class action, you know, is, far, is a far more powerful force actually than any little individual you might, uh, initiative you might take to try and get ahead, you know, to try and get ahead of, a, you know, of, of another work. The development of that, those sorts of ideas, this is what we call a, a contradictory consciousness that's held by most people, you know, in, in capitalist society. On the one hand, constantly being fed the, the, the dominant ideas, constantly coming up against, you know, the limitations of the system which reinforce those ideas. On the other hand, having a whole other experience, you know, of life and particularly, as I said, you know, um, you know f f for many people through history and working class people through history have had histories of struggle, you know, that they, that they hold to, you know, and that they count can point to. And we call reformism is the expression of those, of those contradictory ideas. On the one hand, recognising actually there's a hell of a lot wrong with this system and I'd like a whole lot of things to change. And on the other hand, actually accepting the general setup of the way that society operates. You know, so something might be wrong, but if we're going to get changes, it's going to have to happen within the limits of the system. I forget the name of the theorist, but I love this um, you know, quote from a Marxist theorist. He says, for many people, it's, it's, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Like, you, you just actually can't see, you know, for, for many people, the, the possibilities of the actual fundamental transformation. You know, it's presented to you as being that there's this, you know, political process that we can vote or, you know, we can have some sort of small political change that might ameliorate some of the some of the problems that I've got with the system, you know, but 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 can't see, you know, the need for you know that that, that far more far more profound uh, transformation, and as well as that just general reformist consciousness that comes from daily life in capitalism, you also have, um, you know, through the emergence of capitalist society and the struggles of working class people, the development of trade unions and a trade union bureaucracy, which embody, you know, in far in, in far more material ways those reformist <laughs> ideas and that and that reformist consciousness within the organisations of the trade unions, which 
exist, you know, on the one hand, they get their power from working people actually organising collectively. In the final analysis, they get their power from, you know, the, the uh, capacity of workers to strike and to fight, you know, and, and to fight collectively. Whereas on the other hand, you know, they exist within this entire legal framework of capitalism, which will allow them to operate. They exist to actually bargain the sale of labour power to the system. You know, so this is a, a profoundly contradictory role where, on the one hand, they need um, workers' struggle and they need workers' organisation and they need some sort of fight you know, to, to, to exist and to have any power, whereas, on the other hand, they actually you know, exist and, and have an interest in maintaining um, you know, the smooth operation of, wage, of the wage labour system. You know, they, 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 at the end of the day, they want to do the deal, get the agreement, the terms on which, you know, labour will be, um, labour will be uh, exploited, uh, you know, will, will be set, you know, through those, through those trade union structures. So, you know, th this is, you know, like a particular expression, you know, of that, of, of, of reformist consciousness and, and, and of that contrary, of that contradictory consciousness. And it's out of that experience, you know, of, of, of understanding, the, you know, the extreme limitations of those sort of workers' organisations and, and the the real um, limitations of, of reformist political organisation that um, Lenin and the Bolsheviks and, and then more generally uh, through the experience of the Communist International, the Communist Movement more broadly, came up with the theory that we actually need a clearly revolutionary party that doesn't try to pretend that it's an organisation for all workers at all times, as major social democratic reformist parties had you know, prior to that. We don't position ourselves as being the party of all of the workers, even though we position ourselves as the best fighters you know, for working class interests, we recognise that actually having a revolutionary consciousness, actually recognising that not only the possibility but the necessity of taking on and smashing the system and organising society on a fundamentally different basis, this requires you establishing separate organisations of that militant minority, of that revolutionary minority that can consistently contest the dominant ideas, consistently offer an alternative worldview you know, that's actually based in you know, the possibilities of socialism, the possibilities of life you know, based on um, collective control you know, and, and, and solidarity. And that, that, that organisation is needed to fight day in, day out against the dominant ideology, um, to hold the lessons. We talk about the Revolutionary Party being the, the memory of the class, to actually hold the lessons of, you know, all of the struggles that have, you know, that have, that have, that have come before, um, you know, but also as, as, a, we as a weapon, as a, as a force to actually organise and take forward the struggles of, of, of working people and the oppressed. So that, that was the sort of theoretical break that came, um, you know, with the development of the Bolsheviks and, and with Lenin and the Communist International, was the need for that to organise explicitly as a revolutionary, as a revolutionary minority, as a revolutionary party, if we want to take on reformist ideas and, rec and reformist consciousness. But this brings us to the second part, the second, you know, um, tenant, if you like, of Marxism that I talked about in the opening, you know, in the opening, and that's the self-emancipation of the working class is the act of the working class, not the act of a revolutionary minority, right? So you might have established this revolutionary minority that has this understanding of, you know, the need for that, you know, fundamental uh, revolutionary change, but it's not the revolutionary party that's going to bring about that change. It's workers themselves. It's workers themselves actually, you know, in struggle, taking control of their workplaces, you know, mass upheaval, confronting and, and smashing the state. You know, that's the, that's the sort of action that, that, that's going to get us there. And the United Front, you know, is put forward as the central strategy 
for how do we actually build that bridge between a revolutionary organisation that has all this whole analysis about what's wrong with the system and the struggle that's required against it, and the mass of working class people who hold, who hold, um, who hold uh, reformist ideas and, and reformist consciousness? How can the Revolutionary Party actually act as a small cog that can turn a much bigger wheel, bring people into struggle, where they can firstly actually feel their own power, they can actually win demands day to day, defend their interests day to day, you know, and on the other hand, draw lessons, you know, from those experiences about the true nature of the system. As I went over before, there's, there's no education you can get really about the true nature of the police, the true nature of parliament, the true nature of the media or whatever it might be, other than when you're actually hard up against the system in struggle, when the police are coming in and smashing picket lines and the media is printing justifications for the police smashing picket lines and the parliamentarians are arguing that this is necessary action and will give more budget for the police to smash picket lines, that's when you really come to learn about the nature of, you know, of the government that you had once seen as this sort of the state as this neutral arbiter that can just allow civil society to operate. It is in the process of struggle. So how do you, you, know, how do you get there? And that's the United Front you know, is seen as that, is that strategic orientation to actually reaching out and, and, um, and mobilising alongside reformist workers. And it has a huge range. I mean, it's a very, very general formulation about what's, about what's needed. But there's a huge range of possible forms, you know, of organisation that you could point to to say this is an expression of a united front, of a united front strategy. So Trotsky, for example, um, you know, in the Communist International meetings was talking, was saying, just as the trade union is the rudimentary form of the united front in the economic struggle, so the Soviet is the highest form of the united front under the conditions in which the proletariat enters the epoch of fighting for power. You know, so there's, there's two examples. A trade union's an example of a united front. You know, trade unions have got revolutionaries in them, not very many these days, but <laughs> they've got revolutionaries in them, very often the best militants, some of the best activists, you know, agitating for the broader, you know, changes are, are revolutionaries, but of course, you know, vast majority of workers who are in trade unions are, you know, have a, have a reformist consciousness and hold them there. But together in a trade union, you can formulate programs for action, you can struggle together, you can fight together, you can agitate, you know, to push the boundaries of what, of what people have thought is, um, of what thought is possible. The Soviet was also understood, even though this was an organ, an organ of revolutionary power, Power that actually smashed the state in Russia, the, the capitalist state, and you know, and, and became itself a work, an organ of workers' power, a workers', you know, a workers' state. This was also conceived of by the Bolsheviks right up through to the insurrection, actually, as a united front. You know, where there's a very furious argument saying who is actually going to take power in October of 1917? Will it be the Bolshevik Party or will it be done in the name of the Soviets? Where you had, you know, um, other. Reformist, you know, Menshevik and other sort of tendencies that were involved in that, in that process. But it wasn't really theorised as, you know, in this terms of a united front, sort of at that point in, in, in 1917 when the revolution happened. You had, um, you know, in, in that period after the First World War, um, these, uh, this enormous surge forward in a revolutionary wave in Europe. Um, that, you know, and, and, and around the world, actually, anti-colonial rebellions that were taking place around the world. And the, and the communist international meetings, these were meetings that called by the Russian Communist Party, but trying to bring other workers that were realising the limitations of the social democratic parties that had taken them to war right across Europe to say, we, you, this is where the, the hard line for the opening couple of meetings, 1919, 1920, from the communist international was polemicising about this idea about the need to actually break with social democracy. If we're going to be able to carry forward this revolutionary wave, we need revolutionary organisations, you know, that are clearly, you know, in, in, on, the, on the lines of the vanguard party that I'd 
that I discussed earlier, that this, this is the break that needs to happen. So they drew up like the 21 conditions. If you want to join the Communist International, you need a revolutionary organisation that's cl you know, clearly anti-imperialist for the smashing of the state. You know, we'll at all points in all forums expose the treacherous social democratic leaders, you know, who've betrayed the working class, etc, etc. This was the, you know, the thrust, if you like, 1919, 1920, you know, through the Communist International, was that first side of the equation, the importance of the Revolutionary Party. 1922, 1923, uh, the third and fourth congresses, you know, this is a period actually where that revolutionary wave has, 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 has well and truly ebbed. You know, the two red years in Italy, um, you know, had, had, had come to a close. Mussolini was on the march. The German Communist Party had launched, a, you know, a, an ultra-left sort of push and been smashed and were, were on the, you know, and were on the defensive. And it's in this, and it's in this period um, that, the, that the Bolsheviks and other revolutionaries in the Communist International started to really argue for the importance of that second side of the equation. Yes, you need your revolutionary organisation. It must be absolutely clearly for the smashing of the state. It must be built on that basis. But... If we are going to defend ourselves in a context of a receding revolutionary wave, a rise of fascism, a rise of the right, etc., we are going to need to seriously orient to mobilising masses of workers who haven't yet, yet been convinced of been convinced of revolutionary politics. So I'll just read a, a quote from, um, from Trotsky at the Congress in 1922 on the United Front. He said, if the Communist Party had not broken drastically and irrevocably with the reformist social democrats, it would not have become the party of the proletarian revolution. It would have forever remained a parliamentary safety valve attached to the bourgeois state. Whoever does not understand this does not know the first letter of the ABC of communism. If the Communist Party did not seek for organisational avenues, that at every given moment joint coordinated action between the communist and non-communist, including social de democratic working masses, were made possible, it would have thereby laid bare its own incapacity to win over, on the basis of mass action, the majority of the working class. It would degenerate into a communist propaganda society, but never develop into a party for the conquest of power. It's not enough to possess the sword, one must give it an edge. It's not enough to give the sword an edge, one must know how to wield it. After separating the communists from the reformists, it's not enough to fuse the communists together by means of organisational discipline. It's necessary that this organisation should learn how to guide all the collective activities of the proletariat in all spheres of its living struggle. This is the second letter of the alphabet of communism. So number one, revolutionary party. Number two, united front. You have to find a way to, and this is, the report was on the united front. This is a speech he gave to the Congress. You must, must, must go out and build, you know, struggles that can actually bring reformist workers into action. And at that, and at that point in time in Europe, you had ma mass social democratic parties and mass communist parties. And a lot of the way that people discussed how we were going to get these united fronts was to appeal to the social democratic parties to enter into formal agreements around demands for struggle that, that, that both could agree with. So, you know, we'll, you know, no, no cutting wages, you know, action against the rise of the far right, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Basic things that everyone could agree with. Right, let's get together and get out on the street and fight for these. You know, and then there was a struggle that was waged workplace by workplace, factory council by factory council, et cetera, to try and 
convince social democratic parties and social democratic workers to come in behind you know, these, these United Front um, initiatives. So that was like, one, again, one, one particular time. And there's a whole story about what happened in the 20s. This is very, actually very, very successful. The German Communist Party recovers enormously from about 44,000 members in, in mid-1921, you know, up more than 200,000 by the end of 1922, precisely because of this orientation you know, that, 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 had come out of the, that had come out of the experience of the Communist International. So that's the sort of, you know, if you like, the classical period of the United Front that we might talk about, and, and, but, but I'm running out of time. But I do think, as I made the, the point at, at the end, it's not just like, okay, that's that one form, then that's, United, that's the United Front. It's, it's, it's an art all the time about how, as a revolutionary organisation, do you try and build alliances, raise demands that will actually bring people into struggle that don't agree with you about the need to smash the system, but will actually push up against the government, push up against the employers, you know, um, highlight the contradictions of the system and defend working class interests. You know, it's only at the end of the day mass action that can actually defend our immediate interests and it's only mass action that allows people to learn, you know, about the need to, to push on, you know, further to, to revolution. So, you know, if we talk, you know, all the even about, you know, uh, organising a particular demonstration, you know, you think about it when you go out to build it, one of the things that we'll do if we're going to be building a major demonstration, have a good think about who's going to be on the speaking platform. And it's not just who's going to get up and make the most fiery speech against this policy or whatever. We think very consciously, how can we actually make sure that there's organisations that are represented on this platform that will make it more comfortable for workers that might be looking at it or people that might be looking at it as a bit radical as this demonstration, I don't know about the people organising it. Oh, there's a speaker from, you know, whatever it might be, you know, trade union speaker, Labor Party speaker, Green speaker, you know, what, you know, what community organisation, whatever it might be. Okay, you know, the, it's looking like it's got, uh, you know, a broader support. It's looking like it's got a broader appeal. This is something that I'm going to be interested in, you know, in actually going along to. You know, so, so that's one thing, you know, seeking endorsements for organisation, for demonstrations. You know, we'll go out and try very, very hard to convince, you know, union branches, you know, political, um, you know, other, you know, more mainstream political groups, but, you know, also, as I said, community organisations, NGOs even, you know, sometimes or whatever, we can endorse this, endorse this demonstration to, to show... You you know, to show people that it has broad support, you know, and to bring and to bring people into struggle. Um, you know, we, we, we do pay a lot of attention, though, in the in these, you know, through these processes of building these rallies and do these uh, to these campaigns to the particular nature of the demands that you raise in those uh, circumstances. The demand needs to have a cut against the government and it needs to have a widespread appeal. You know, it needs to be something that's, you know, very, very clearly is going to take a fight to win. You know, there's no point calling a rally for something people aren't going to want to fight. You know, we're going to actually have to fight and struggle and we agree with that demand and we're going to come out and we're going to win. You know, we don't put forward the maximum program. You know, in the refugee campaign, we don't have, you know, open borders, smash all nations or whatever on our... I mean, that's what we believe. We don't put that on the, on the thing. We say, bring them here, you know, which actually does. Let, let, them, let them land, you know. It, you know that, yeah, of course. You know, people should be, should be able to, to, you know, refugees should be able to land. But implicit in that is actually a fight against, you know, the, the, board, the border itself, the, you know, the detention regime, the migration regime. So you're, you're trying to build that tension in and you're trying to, you know, radicalise and, and mobilise people through the process. And, and we don't accept... We don't accept there being actually demands put up in these, you know, where we, where we have influence, demands putting up in these campaigns or things which, which, um, which are 
divide, which raise demands which actually divide, you know, the working class. So we struggle very, very hard, for example, against the slogan of Aussie jobs, even though it's very widespread, understood, everyone will, you know, will, yeah, okay, Aussie jobs, yeah, we'll go along to that rally. Uh, Nationalism is a mainstream idea. We, we do not accept that the Aussie jobs should go up on the thing. Union jobs, you know, or whatever it might be. It's not revolutionary to say union jobs, but you know, the, but, but there is a challenge, if you like, that requires a revolutionary analysis about what's wrong with having an Aussie jobs slogan, you know, as part of a united front that, that you're going to um, try and campaign around. You know, the, the way that that does actually take the class backward, even when, you know, you might be, when you might be, when you might be, um, you know, in a, in a process of, of mobilising. Okay, so I'm probably coming to the end of the thing, and there's plenty of other examples, and I'm sure that they'll come out in the discussion. But I did just want to finish. This is quite a good quote um, from a um, SWP uh, comrade writing in the 1970s, Duncan Hallis, uh, when the party in um, when the party in Britain were really reviving, if you like, a lot of the theory that hadn't hadn't been discussed, you know, as much within the Marxist movement for, for a long time. Uh, there's a whole story about what Stalin did to the whole politics of the United Front, etc., that I won't go into. But there was a real revival, if you like, of trying to theorise and think about, you know, these politics, you know, in the IS uh, in the 1970s. But this is quite a good uh, quote that he wrote about it at the time. He said, the United Front is not a substitute for a revolutionary party. The United Front tactic can never, under any circumstances, mean the subordination of revolutionary politics and organisation to reformist politics and organisation. It presupposes the existence and independence of a revolutionary force. The bigger that force, the greater the United Front possibilities. And I think we can recognise that. You know, how much difference would it make to the Right to Strike campaign, which is not a campaign for revolution, it's a, it's a campaign for some basic industrial rights. How much difference would it make to building that campaign if we were twice the size we were? If we had another 20, you know, industrial militants that are in this organisation, you know, or whatever. So he says, yeah, so the bigger that force, the greater the United Front possibilities. It's not a let's forget our differences and unite approach. On the contrary, the United Front tactic always and inevitably involves a political struggle to compel reformists and centrists to live up to their own pretensions, to break some of their ties with the capitalist establishment, both direct and through the trade union bureaucracy, and to engage in a fight alongside revolutionaries for objectives they themselves profess to support. And I just wanted to finish on that because I think that that's also, you know, quite an, quite an important point is that, you know, very often revolutionaries and reformists will have, will have, you know, agreement on demands. Change the rules is a very good example. For example, we could, we could all, you know, all agree, for example, about the need to get, scrap the penalty rate cut. Okay, but it's quite different about how are we going to cut, scrap the penalty rate cut between a reformist approach, the approach of the trade union bureaucracy, which sees it pretty much squarely in electoral terms. We'll go out, we'll campaign for the election of a Labor government who can reverse the penalty rate cut, versus us who say, actually, what's needed if we're going to be able to seriously defend the wages of low-paid people is an industrial campaign. We need strikes. You know, but every little thing that we do going around trying to move the motions in the union branches, etc., to call for self-activity. We want delegates meetings. We want demonstrations. We want mobilisation around these demands that you're all saying you're supporting. You're putting memes out and this and saying, change the rules. Great. Let's have a rally. Let's have a strike. You know, you're, you're relating to that sentiment. You're relating to that you know, that, that, that is there, and you're trying to, as it says, you know, pull, you know, pull, engage in a fight um, for objectives that the, that, that the reformists themselves profess to support. 
You know, it opens up the possibilities, the fact that reformist leaders will actually come out and speak about the need for change, speak about the need to campaigning, but it's up to revolutionaries to actually really pull, you know, pull those, um, you know, pull those sentiments into self-activity, into action, you know, and build the power of the, build the power of the broader working class in the process of building the revolutionary organisation. Thank you.